If you would, uh, um, turn with me to uh, Isaiah 6, uh, starting in verse 1. And before we get going, I just wanted to uh, recommend a book. I got a good response from the book I recommended last time I was up here. And, um, and most, I think a good majority of you has probably read this book at some point. It's, one, it's a classic um, by R.C. Sproul. Uh, it's called The Holiness of God. And um, if you haven't read this, read this book yet, I, I would highly suggest reading it at some point. Um, it is an amazing book. And today's sermon, uh, I got a lot of the information um, a lot of the um, what's in this sermon uh, from this book, so I highly highly re- recommend the, the book uh, to you. Um, Isaiah six one. I want to start by asking a question: Is the Old Testament God different from the New Testament God? I know, uh, and I and I hear the answer out there. Most of us would say, uh, of course not. No. Uh, we've been ta- taught well enough to, to know that. And I also hope that the sermon series that we've been going through, through the Old Testament, has helped us see why the answer is no. But this question is a huge struggle for a lot of people. Let me see if I can come at this question from a different perspective, maybe to, 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 to see if you do, if we do have a struggle here. What if I asked, if Jesus walked into this room today, walked in here this morning, what would your reaction be? What would your response be to him? Maybe we would praise him. Maybe we'd have questions to ask him, be excited to see him. Maybe you just run up and and give him a hug. Maybe for some of us that are, are sick, we would go up and ask him to heal us. Let me ask another question. If Yahweh as displayed in the Old Testament, made his presence known in this room this morning, what would your reaction be? Probably fear. Probably fear. This is what R.C. Sproul says in his book. Whoever reads the Old Testament must struggle with the apparent brutality of God's judgment found there. For many people, this is as far as they read. They stumble over the violent passages we call the hard sayings. Some people see these sayings as sufficient reason to reject Christianity out of hand completely. These hard sayings seem ample reason to hold the Old Testament God in contempt. Others try to soften the blow by turning the Old Testament into a religious parable by applying a method of cut and paste, um, assigning the more brutal passages to the level of myth. Some even go as far as to, to argue that the Old Testament God is different, uh, as a different God from the New Testament God. A shadowy God with a bad temper, a, a, a kind of demonic deity whose blazing wrath is beneath the, the dignity of the New Testament God, the God of love. So is the Old Testament God different than the New Testament God? Is the Old Testament God a God of wrath and scary, while the New Testament God is a God of love and fatherly? Is the Old Testament God a God of law, while the New Testament God is a a God all about grace? Where is the gospel in the Old Testament? Where is the Trinity in the Old Testament? Where is Jesus? If you've never asked these questions, many are, and we, we need to have an answer for them. Many see the Bible as two different religions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because of this, many, many churches just stay away from the Old Testament, or, or at least the hard sayings in the Old Testament. They say things like, some Old Testament passages are just too scary, too confusing. We just want to preach on the love of God. We just want to preach Jesus. Last week, uh, Pastor Brent appropriately said that one of man, if not man's biggest problem is he likes to put his own words in God's mouth and then say, that is my God. This is called idolatry. And I want to say this, I want to add to this. Overemphasizing one of God's attributes while ignoring others is doing the same thing. You can't understand the love of God 
till you wrestle with the amazing, glorious, and terrifying holiness of God. It's out of his holiness that we see the true love. Today I want to look at three, three passages, three visions of God. The first one is before the exile. That's where we're at is, is uh, Israel is being exiled into Babylon. And this is, the first vision is before that time. The second vision is during that time, during the exile, as, as Israelites are getting pulled out of the promised land into Babylon. And I have one goal today. The goal is to give all of us just a big view of God. To see the awesomeness of God. To see the, the holiness of God. So that we can understand better the love of God. So the first vision, this is before the exile. This is Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, um, there's some context just before we get going. Uh, this king had a, a tragic life, uh, started off faithful, um, ended with leprosy, and had a tragic death. The nation of Israel just lost their king. This is, this is a time of mourning. Enemies are approaching from all over. The future for Israel was uncertain. And as historical events or as uh, modern events as what happened this morning... Maybe we feel that way about our own country. We don't know what the future holds. So Isaiah went to the temple to find comfort. And it says, In the first year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah is seeing a vision of the Lord in the temple where you would expect to see a vision of the Lord. The Lord here is, is lowercase, uh, the, the L is uppercase, but the rest of the letters are lowercase. And, and this means that the word in Hebrew is not Yahweh, the name of the Lord, but it's Adonai. Lord, with all capital letters, if you're going through your Old Testament, it, it, it is meaning that that is the name Yahweh in Hebrew. It's the name of the Lord, but Lord with lowercase letters, just the L capitalizes Adonai, which is the title of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord, Adonai, sitting upon a throne. And Adonai means sovereign one. It means God is the sovereign one. Therefore, Lord, the translation in English is very appropriate. And as a side note, it's what's used for Jesus more than not. Isaiah in this passage is saying, I... I saw the sovereign one sitting on the throne in this uncertain time, in this time that we don't know what is going to happen, God is still on his throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This high and lifted up, God is above us. He, he, he transcends us, and, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And notice as we go through these two first visions that, that you're not going to see a clear description of God. He, he is too glorious. He is too holy. He is too bright. Isaiah can't even look at him. So he describes the things around God. And even God's robe is glorious. It fills the temple. Verse 2. And above him, and again, not describing him, but above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. And with two, they covered their feet. And, and with two, they flew. These are sinless angel, uh, angels that have to hide their face from the holiness of God. Why six wings? Well, think about this. God created these beings. God gave them wings just to hide their face from God. R.C. Sproul says, The seraphim are not sinful humans burdened with impure hearts, yet as angelic beings, they are still creatures. And even in their lofty status as associates with the heavenly host, it is necessary for them to shield their eyes from a direct gaze on the face of God. 
They are fearfully and wonderfully made, equipped by their creator with with a special pair of wings to cover their face in his grand presence. God also gave them another set of wings just to cover their feet. This is a sign of humility. These awesome beings fall infinitely short to the awesomeness of God and are humbled. And God gave them one set of wings just to fly. Think about this. If angels that have not sinned have to hide their face from the holiness of God and have to cover their feet in humility, what do you think the proper reaction for man is? Man who has rebelled. Man who worships everything but God. Man who has put himself in the place of God saying, I am the sovereign one. I am in control of my life. I determine reality. I determine the rules. I am God. Not you, God. At best, leave me alone. Look at verse 3. And one, it's a seraphim, these angels, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. In Hebrew, uh, one of the ways you emphasize something is by repeating it. This is an example is when Jesus would say, truly, truly. Saying this statement is true. It's not just truly. It's truly, truly, I say to you. When something is elevated three times or said three times, it's elevated to the superlative level. Meaning the most holy. Or the holiest. Or the standard for holiness. And here's an interesting side note. Only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Not God's mercy, not God's wrath, not God's justice, not God's grace, not God's love, but God is holy, holy, holy. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is seeing the glory of God. He's in the presence of holiness. What is this like? Let me remind you of a story in Exodus, just to give us perspective. Moses asked to see God's face. He goes, all I want, God, can I see your face? And God said, you can't see my face, you'll die. No one can see my face and live. My holiness, my glory, it's too much for you. It will kill you. So God says in his grace, I will show you my my back or hindquarters or just the tail end of God. A a glimpse of God's holiness and, and, and glory. A small portion. And when Moses, after seeing this small portion, this glimpse, returned from the mountain where he saw it, his face was shining. And when people saw it, Moses' face, who only saw a glimpse of God's holiness, they were terrified. God's holiness is terrifying. But where is the God of love? I mean, this is what we expect from the Old Testament. Where is that love? Again, to understand the love of God, you first have to start with the terrifying holiness of God. God is a just God. In his nature, in his holiness, justice is his nature. That means he destroys sin. He destroys evil. And here's man's dilemma. We are a sinful people. And God is a holy God. So Isaiah, for the first time ever, gets a real understanding of this. He sees holiness for what it is. And what is his reaction? Verse 5. And I said, woe is me. Think of the significance of this. Isaiah is a prophet, and he's going to be a prophet that, that proclaims judgment on Israel, that proclaims judgment on Jerusalem, and that's going to proclaim judgment on all the nations. But he starts by proclaiming judgment on himself. Look, you can't stare perfection in the face, holiness in the face, without realizing that you fall horribly short. 
It's easy to compare yourself to other men, other sinful men. But as soon as we see God, as soon as we say, see the standard of righteousness, we will join Isaiah in saying, woe is me. He doesn't stop there. He explains why. Woe is me, for I am lost. Some of your translations say I am ruined or, or I am undone. The word means unraveled. There's no argument. There, there's no justification. There, there's no defense. In one moment, Isaiah's self-esteem and self-righteousness is shattered. He is naked, exposed before the righteous judge and is found guilty. Why? Well, he, he explains, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Why lips? Not thoughts, not actions, not flesh, not eyes. Lips. Because what comes out of our mouth comes from the heart. The mouth exposes the heart. And I'll tell you, this is scary. For me. Some things that come out of my mouth are just ugly. Isaiah is saying, I'm a man with an unclean heart. And the mouth exposes it. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man with unclean lips, and and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am doomed. Again, where is the love of God? This is what we expect. The Old Testament, it's found in verse 6. Then one of the the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has, has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The burnt lips that are happening on Isaiah symbolizes Isaiah's sins being paid for. And this is a vivid symbol. It's very clear. It's painful. Lips are very sensitive. A hot coal on your lips would be extremely painful. It's visual. You would see the smoke rising before you. You you could smell the burnt flesh of your lips. It's an analogy saying that that mercy and forgiveness is not cheap. It costs something. But here's another dilemma. It's another dilemma. Burnt lips do not pay for sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And this is talking about the second death. This is talking about eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. It's unjust not to give the wages to a person that you owe them. God's justice is on the line here. God's holiness. It would be unjust and unholy if God does not give a person his deserved wages. And burnt lips does not equal eternal punishment. So how can God say your sins are atoned for and still be just? Well, you see that Isaiah gets it, as we'll, we'll, we'll see in a second here. But, but I think Isaiah gives us a hint in, in Isaiah 52, verse 13. We just turn there real quick. Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What's this sound like? Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and... And lift it up. And you better believe that this vision by Isaiah was unforgettable. He didn't go, oops, I used the, the same language there. This can't be by chance. There's a connection here. And he says, as many were astonished at you, at this one that's going to be high and lifted up, 
Why, why are many astonished? Because of the holiness, because of, because of the greatness, the, the justice, the talent, the glory. What, why are they astonished? Astonished because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You want to talk about the love of God? God the Father sent God the Son because he loves us so much to the cross to pay for sins. To be marred beyond human semblance. To pay the price we owed and at the same time preserving God's holiness. Look at verse 4 in Isaiah 53. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All, like sheep, have gone astray. All have turned, everyone to his own ways. We are all sinners, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to become accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. See, Isaiah gets it. <laughs> he gets it. The burning of the limbs pointed to, to something else, to a, to a real atonement. It pointed to the suffering servant, the one that would be crushed because of, of the sins of many. That's love. And I know Isaiah gets it because look at verse 8 back in Isaiah 6. Go back to Isaiah 6 and look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, I, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. He goes from terror and fear to boldness and confidence. Almost a giddiness. Send me, send me, please send me. He desires to serve God. Why? Because he's experienced the, the grace of God. He's experienced the love of God. This is the first vision. You go from Isaiah seeing God's glory to Isaiah for the first time truly realizing who he really is. A sinner. He cries out for, for mercy. God gives him mercy and grace. He becomes a servant for God with confidence because that God he saw is on his side. Second vision. Turn to, to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> this is one of the most more difficult passages in, in the Old Testament. Many people get to this passage, start reading it, and it's just so confusing that they don't continue on through Ezekiel. They just stop. But I think you'll see that, that this passage makes sense in its context and with a little extra information. But let's start. Ezekiel 1, verse 1 says this, In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the um, Chabar Canal, the heavens were open, and I saw a vision of God. The time is, this is during the exile. Ezekiel has been taken away with Daniel and the others. He's in Babylon. The context of this is, is he's in a pagan nation, Babylon, miles away from the temple, miles away from Jerusalem, miles away from the promised land. Verse 2, on the fifth day of the month, 
It was the fifth year of the, the exile, and King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord, came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of uh, Buzai, in the land of the Chad, um, Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy cloud came out of the north, and, a, and a, or, or sorry, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, um, as it were, gleaming metal. Ezekiel has, has a vision. And this is a difficult vision. But let me give you just, just some few observations that might help us as we go through this vision together. The first observation is just the outline of this vision. And, and from here on out, verse 5 through 14, you're going to see a, a description of four living creatures. From, from 15 to 21, the second part of this outline, underneath these four living creatures are four wheels. From 22 through 28, above the living creature is a platform, and above that platform is a throne sitting on the platform. And the second part of verse 28, we see the glory of the Lord. So that's the first observation, just an outline. But the second observation is this. Ezekiel is having a hard time describing what he sees. In the Hebrew language, uh, it, it's a mess. There's the grammar and, and the, the sequence is all out of, out of sorts. Why? Well, have you ever seen something or, or have ever been a part of something that was so amazing that it was hard to put words to? It was hard to describe? This is what's happening with Ezekiel. You think about this. God inspired Ezekiel to write a passage that conveys the idea that Ezekiel is seeing something beyond description. God inspired Ezekiel to be completely lost for words. And also think about this. I am trying to explain a passage that is trying to explain an experience that is completely and utterly unexplainable. So if you read through this passage and are lost, there's a purpose behind it. And here's the point. God is so far beyond us. He so transcends us. He's so far above us that he's unexplainable. Third observation. Notice the repeated words, like and likeness. There's a couple repeated words. One of them is like and likeness or resembles. Ezekiel can't describe it, so he says it's like a, a will. It's like this Another repeated word is, is fire or lightning and brightness. And, and an important word that's repeated is the number four. Four, 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 four. The last observation I want you to, to see is the emphasis on mobility. The creatures are mobile. The, the wheels underneath the, the creatures are mobile. The throne, therefore, above the creatures and the wheels are mobile. So let's start. The creatures, the living creatures. Verse 5. And from the midst of it, these, these, this cloud that has come, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. And each um, of them had four wings. You see, four creatures, four faces, four wings. Verse 7, their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a cast foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. And under their wings, um, on the, their four sides, their they had human hands, and the four had their faces and, and their uh, wings. Thus, their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning um, as they went. So four, 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 like, like, like. Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the faces of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Four faces of the likeness of a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Such were their faces, verse 11. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each um, of which... Uh, touched the wings of another, while two wings covered their bodies. Now pay attention to verse 12. The, the movement of these creatures, verse 12. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. Because of the four faces, they didn't have to turn. They could go any direction 
as the Spirit of God led them. Verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning, and the creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of flashes of lightning. Not only did they move any directions without turning, but they moved like lightning going across the sky, just boom, boom, boom. Why such a, such a focus on movement? Well, it keeps going. The wheels, verse, this is the second part of the outline, the wheels, verse 15. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth besides the living creatures, one for each of the four of them, four creatures, that means four wheels underneath the four creatures. Verse 16. As for the appearance of the wheels um, and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of um, Briel, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. Somehow these wheels were wheels within a wheel, like a, a ball or something. But this is key. Verse 17. When they went, they went in any of, of their four directions without turning as they went. Because it was a wheel within a wheel. Just like the creatures, these wheels can move any direction without turning, like lightning. Then it gets a little weirder. Verse 18. And the rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the, the living creatures was in the wheels. Just like the creatures, they were directed by, by the Holy Spirit. And, and the wheels were full of eyes. Verse 21. When those went, they went. And when those stood, th- these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose um, along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So, so what's this all mean? Well, you have four creatures. You have four wheels underneath the creatures. Above the creatures, you have a, a platform that the creatures are holding up. And then above that, you have the throne of God. And because the wheels and the creatures are mobile, God is mobile. God is showing Ezekiel that he is not limited to the land of Israel. He's not limited to the, to the temple that will be destroyed shortly. Isaiah saw a vision in the temple. That's where you would expect to see a vision of God. But Ezekiel is seen in a vision of God in Babylon, a pagan nation. And this only makes sense if God's omnipresent. If God's the only true God. If he's God even in Babylon. God is in all four, number four, corners of the earth. He, he, he is in all four directions of a compass. God is the God of all peoples and all places. Not just in heaven. Not just in Israel. Not just in the promised land. Remember, Israel's getting, getting pulled out of the promised land and taken to Babylon. And God is showing Ezekiel that, that he is everywhere. So the platforms and the throne. Look at verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. This expanse is like some kind of platform. Uh, creatures are holding above their heads. Verse 23, And underneath the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, and at one towards another, and each creature had, had two wings covering its body. And when uh, they went, I heard the sound of the wings, like the sound of many waters. Many waters, like, like the ocean waves crashing. Or, or a waterfall, like the Niagara Falls, just the sound is, fills the air all around you. Like a, a, a downpour. Like the sound of many waters. Like the sound of the Almighty. Like a sound of a, a, tu- a tumult. Like the sound of a, an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. 
and above the expanse over their heads, now this is above everything, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance of like, like sapphire, and a seat above the likeness of a throne, uh, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. There's not much description of, of God in both these visions. But God on the throne in this passage has the likeness of human appearance. Verse 27. And upward uh, from what had the appearance of his uh, waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of, of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of of fire, and there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of a bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. And we get to the climax of this passage. The second part of verse 28. Half a verse. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This glory of God outdid everything. So glorious that Ezekiel can only describe it in few words. So was the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Half a verse. And when Ezekiel saw this, what was his reaction? The same as Isaiah. And when I saw it, the glory of the Lord, I fell on my face. One moment, complete and utter fear. He crumbled, just like Isaiah, was undone, ruined, exposed, naked, and terrified. Bowed down to the ground, saying, my life is in your hands. The wages of sin is death, and I am a sinner. Woe is me, because your holy justice demands my death. And you ask again, well, where, where is the grace? Where is the love of God? The third part of verse 28. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Chapter 2, verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, stand to your feet. I will speak with you. Well, how could this be? How could Ezekiel stand in the presence of the Lord? Moses could only handle God's back. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me. Even the sinless angels had to hide themselves. Verse 2. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. This is the same Holy Spirit that was directing and energizing the creatures and the wheels. Now that Spirit is directing Ezekiel to stand in the presence of the Lord. Mercy and grace has found this man. Just like Isaiah, it was God's mercy and grace allow him to stand in the presence of the throne. This is love. Listen, the throne of God is awesome. It is beyond description. It is holy. It is terrifying. But look at what Hebrews 4.16 says. Don't turn there, just listen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help, and to help in the time of need. The throne of God is called the throne of grace. Just like Ezekiel, we can approach confidently and boldly knowing the grace of the Lord has covered our sins. But this is only true for those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. The suffering servant. Then we see Ezekiel, just like Isaiah, confidently becoming a servant. Uh, verse 3, and he said to me, Son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel. You are my servant. You're going to be my prophet, and you're going to do an impossible task. But have confidence. I am on your side. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Man has a vision of God's glory. Man is rightfully terrified, humbly admits his undoing. God extends mercy and grace. Man boldly and confidently becomes a willing servant. 
Guys, this is the gospel. This is the gospel message. This is the gospel in the Old and New Testament. Man gets, gets an understanding of God. Man is rightfully terrified, humbly repents, cries out for mercy. God extends mercy and grace through the death and resurrection of his son. Then man is called into servanthood. This is the gospel. And it's completely congruent with the New Testament. Old Testament and New Testament. One same message. Like the first two visions were, were, were past visions, before the exile. The second vision was during the exile. This was both to warn Israel and to encourage Israel. Warning to those that are still in rebellion against God, that have not put their faith in God. Encouragement to those that have put their faith in God. This is an amazing God, and he's on your side. Even in Babylon. You know what? This is the same purpose for the third vision. The third vision, though, is in the future. It's in the New Testament. Turn to Revelations 1, 7. <coughs> Revelations 1, 7 starts off by saying, Behold, he is coming. He, this is Jesus, and we've been talking about the meta narrative of Scripture. This is the meta narrative of Scripture. Meta narrative of Scripture. Behold, He is coming. From Genesis three fifteen, the promise of the coming seed, all the way to Revelation, the whole Bible is saying the seed is coming. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Coming with the clouds. What's that sound like? Like 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 Ezekiel. Every eye will see them even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth. The whole earth will see him the second coming. It won't be just in Jerusalem. The whole earth. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth. What what are they going to do? What are we going to do when Jesus comes? Are we going to rejoice? Are we going to praise him? Are we going to exalt him? Are we going to worship him? No, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Will wail. Why? The terror of seeing Jesus's holiness. Let me remind you who's writing. The only place we see the phrase, God is love in the scripture is written by one man, John. He's the one that's writing revelations. From John, he says, Look, what he says about Jesus, he says, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is what one commentator said about this. Jesus came the first time in humiliation. He will come in, or he will return in exaltation. He came the first time to be killed. He will return to kill his enemies. He came the first time to serve. He will return to be served. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He will return as the conquering king. The challenge of the book of Revelations is the same challenge that that we get in the first two visions. It's the same challenge that we get in the entire Bible. Are you ready for his return? Because those that aren't will wail. On account of him. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Skip down to verse 12. John hears this voice behind him. And verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And and in the midst of the the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, someone with with a human appearance, like Ezekiel, clothed with a a long robe, like Isaiah, and and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And in his mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a terrifying Jesus. 
Look at verse 12 again. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and saw seven golden lampstands. These seven golden lampstands represent the churches. So they're the lights to the world. They're, they're lamps to the world. And their seven is the, 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 the number for complete, meaning this is all churches. There's seven specific churches, but it's talking to all of us. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. What's this mean? Well, the son of man is Jesus. It's the title that he gives himself. And Jesus is in the midst of his church. And and, uh, the Great Commission, it says, I will be with you always to the end of the ages. Jesus is with us. Clothed with a a long robe and with with a golden sash around his chest. This is what the high priest would wear. This is telling us that Jesus intercedes for the churches. And at this time, the churches were being heavily persecuted. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Daniel had a vision we didn't talk about, but he says this in it. As I looked, this is Daniel 7, 9. As as I looked, the thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his heads were like pure wool. White hair represented the wisdom of God. This passage in Revelation is saying Jesus has the wisdom of God. And that makes sense because he is God. His eyes were like a flame of fire. I say this to the high schoolers all the time. But this is not Jesus is my homeboy. A few years ago, it was really popular shirts and hats that say, Jesus is my homeboy. And I don't want to be judgmental of whoever was wearing those things, but I thought, this is no Jesus is my homeboy. His eyes were flames of fire. Fire like Ezekiel. His feet were like burnished bronze like Ezekiel, refined in a a furnace. And his voice was like the voice roaring of, of many waters like Ezekiel. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can't even look at him. This is a terrifying Jesus. You know how I know this is a terrifying Jesus? John's reaction. Think about this. John is a man who was an apostle that walked with Jesus three years. He was not just an apostle. He was in the inner circle, the three closest friends of Jesus. He was called in the the gospel of John, the disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus even entrusted John. John was there when he was getting crucified and said, John, take care of my mom. And this isn't the John we see in the Gospels. This is John when he's about 90 years old. Most of his life, the majority of his life, being in faithful service and worship of Jesus and God. Who's been persecuted, who historians said was dipped in boiling oil and somehow lived through it. And was in prison while he's writing this for Jesus. When I, verse 17, being John, saw him being Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Look, I I emphasize God's holiness and justice. And that's mostly because we live in a culture that that, that paints Jesus out to be a big teddy bear in the sky. Someone, when you get hurt, you can give him a hug and he'll hug back. Look, the Bible is clear. God is love. But the Bible also says that God is holy. And you can't understand God's love until you understand God's holiness. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Jesus had the authority, the power, the right to destroy John. But he gives mercy and grace. He says, fear not. I have took your place. Your sins are forgiven. You have no 
more need to fear. This is love. This is love. But he laid his hand, his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. He died on the cross, but that's not the end of the story. He was raised. He is the living one. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I started today by asking a question. What would you do if Jesus walked in here this morning? You know, I don't know because there's places that Jesus veiled his glory and gently went to his disciples. But I can say this with assurance. If Jesus came in here in his full glory, in his full holiness, as he will in his second coming, we would all be on our faces in terror like, like, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like John, as if we were dead, undone, exposed, naked. But for those that have their faith in him, he would reach out and say, fear not. But let me be clear. That is only for those that have their faith in him. If you're in here this morning and you have not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as your only hope of salvation from the holiness of God, don't wait. Come talk with me. Today, today is the day of salvation. We are not promised tomorrow. Experience the love of God before it's too late. Before you're exposed to the holiness of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, holy, holy, holy are you. God, forgive us where we forget that. Lord, give us grace and mercy. Lord, expose yourself to us. Your glory is where we find joy and satisfaction, but give us grace and mercy so we don't get wiped off the face of the earth. God, we see your love. We see your love in your son's actions and and you giving your only son to come down to die for us, preserving your holiness, that you are still just because sins are paid for on that cross. Yet we get to receive mercy. Lord, help us be amazed in that. Help us, help us get a glimpse of your glory and holiness so that we can be faithful servants, that we can take the gospel in the darkest places of the four corners of this earth knowing you, you are right there with us. Lord, help us have a big view of you. Help us be a church that has a big view of you in a culture that has a very small view of you. God, humble us. Humble us. Amen.